0: Would you please open your Bibles to John fifteen John fifteen? and it was so great to hear from Chris this morning. It was encouraging my soul and i'm I am so grateful for the faithful teaching we've had in this church for years, from chris, from others, and I'm so grateful that I get to at least for this season that I also get to to get in God's Word for the sake of his church. I wish I could make everyone have the experience of having to prepare. For a Sunday message during the week. It, it is such a gift to be able to do that. This work forces me into the Lord, and it, f- in some ways, if I could put it this way, it forces the Lord into me. And I'm so much happier this morning because <laughs> I had to work this week on this message. And I'm just, I'm so hopeful that the joy that the Lord is building in me will become, by his grace, more of your joy as we look at his word together. So I'm just super excited about this passage. Um, we're starting in John 15, 15 through 22. We're, we're at the last chapter. Oh, I'm sorry, John 21. Does it say yet? Yeah? Okay, it says, oh, wow, those... Everybody have their microscopes their <laughs> binoculars in here? That's tiny. I'm so sorry about that for a little... means you guys got to get closer. All right, I got to refocus here. I'm off-roading too much. But thank you for your gentleness about that. Okay, so... But but I'm, I'm, just, I'm just really affected, I'm really excited particularly this morning about this passage. And um, I know I can't be the Holy Spirit, but, um, but he's here, and he can work in you. Uh, good things. So let's go to him, let's go to the Father through the Holy Spirit right now, and ask him for help, okay? Lord, um, you are making my soul more happy in you through your wonderful words through your freeing, cleansing words. God, thank you for your beautiful words. Thank you that you're not some abstract principle, the force, some phenomenon or Virtue just existing out in the world. You are a personal father. You are a personal God who speaks personally to your people. Specific things that they need to hear. And I pray this morning that through the power of the Holy Spirit. You would speak personally to your people today. And I pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. So listen, um, I'm going to read a lot of scripture this morning, okay? So buckle your seatbelts and, and we'll read some scripture together. I I feel a burden um, to read more of the passage today than we're going to cover. So when when we do get to the passage, I'm going to read more of it. And And before that passage, though, I'm going to read a lot of Bible. We're going to start this morning with flashbacks, okay? You ever go to a movie and the movie starts like, you know, 1976, and you spend like five minutes in 1976, and then it's exciting because you see what unfolds. We're going to kind of do that this morning. I'm going to take you guys back from 10 days, about probably 10, 10, 11 days from, from where our main text is today, that morning on the beach that we talked about. I'm going to go back 10 days and start there, okay? So this won't be up there. Our main passage will be, but just listen as we go back in time from, from the beginning of our main passage today by about 10 days. It is the night of the Last Supper. It's the night of Jesus' arrest. Christ is gathered at the supper table with the disciples. And he says this to Peter. Simon. Simon, behold. Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith May not fail. I have prayed for you. That your faith. May not fail. And you. When once you have turned again. Strengthen your brothers. But he said to him. Lord with you. I am ready to go both to prison and to death. Later that night, Christ is in Gethsemane with the disciples. He is full of anguish. And Jesus says to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Even though all will fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you that this very night. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. Now, Even later. Jesus has been arrested. We follow Peter and Jesus. And Simon Peter followed Jesus and did so, and so did another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside the door. And then the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to her, who kept the door, and brought Peter in. Then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, you're not also one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Now the servants and officers who made a fire of coals stood there, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves. And Peter stood with them and warmed himself. Therefore they said to him, You are not also one of his disciples, are you? he denied it and said, I am not. And one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him whose ear Peter had cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter then denied again. Immediately a rooster crowed. And the Gospels tell us another place that Peter wept bitterly. Okay, that's the flashback. Now, here here we are 10 days later. The resurrected Jesus has just fed the disciples a breakfast of toasted bread and flame-wirled fish on the lakeshore. As we talked about last week, it's as surreal (laughs) a situation as you'll find in the Gospels. The last morsel has finished. The new sun's likely rising in the skies of Galilee where Jesus had promised to meet them. And that's where we pick up in verse 15. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon. Peter. Simon, son of John. Do you love me? More than these. And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Tend my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John. Do you love me? And he said to him, Yes, Lord. You know that I love you. And he said to him, Shepherd my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved. Because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. I believe the great theme of this passage many great themes that the theme that God laid on my heart as I prepared this week was was this. The primacy of Jesus. This is a, a longer conversation between Jesus and Peter. and We're going to take it over two messages because it's so crucial. This Sunday and the next. The primacy of Jesus is a theme I think that crosses over the entire conversation. It's the first place of Jesus. It's the... It's the place that Jesus deserves as our Lord. The first place Jesus deserves in our heart. In this conversation, Jesus is the only Lord. He's the only person that matters. And everyone else matters only in how they matter to him. In this conversation, he is the one to love above all other loves. And he alone justifies loving others. In this passage, he's the only one to follow, the only one worthy of our great trust and our great sacrifice. In this conversation between Peter and Jesus, we'll see, especially next week, he's the only sovereign. He's in control of our destinies and he's in control of all of history. It's the primacy of Jesus, the centrality of Jesus Christ in our lives and for all peoples. So as we ride through this conversation, I'm going to be pointing out different ways that the primacy of Jesus reflected that I hope will be helpful for us. And today in particular, I want to focus on two aspects of the primacy of Jesus. The primacy of Jesus in our sin. The primacy of Jesus in our sin and the primacy of Jesus in our love. So you may not see that right now, but let's unpack the text and hopefully get there. Remember, Jesus has appeared on the lake shore. And they come to him for breakfast. And there's this, we talked about it last week, there's this holy fear, this sort of curious dread among all the disciples. They, no one dares to ask him who he is, though so they all know who he is. And so in the narrative, it's Jesus who comes to Peter and sort of breaks the ice. And in this deeply personal and dramatic interchange, Jesus tenderly, but directly, brings Peter back in time through his questions. In a subtle but a way that Peter gets it, he brings him back to the scene of the crime, so to speak. Jesus, he had said just ten days ago or so, if everyone else leaves you, I won't leave you. My love is greater than all these. Now Jesus asked Peter to account for that boast. Do you really love me more than all these? And Peter's answer is, "He does love Jesus, but it's more humble. You know that I love you, period. There's no more passionate protest, even if all the others. And Jesus says, "Tend my lambs." And three times they have this interchange, "Do you love me?" And three times, Jesus directs Peter's love for Jesus back to Jesus' people, back to his followers. Now, as an aside, I just want to talk about this exegetical issue. I've heard from time to time, and maybe you have, that folks will point out that Peter and Jesus use different words from love. Sometimes it's agape, sometimes it's phileo. And they talk about what this might mean for the conversation in the Greek. I think the truth, you know, from other people I've read is is a lot more ambiguous. The words for love in John's gospel, agape, phileo, that, and throughout the Bible they interchange. They're independent of the context. The The love between the Father and the Son it's sometimes agape love, it's sometimes phileo love. The love that God has and Jesus has for people, it's sometimes phileo love, it's sometimes agape love. So I don't, I don't want to make that too solid a, an attempt to make a point there, and I'm not sure the Bible's making. But, and I think you can even see in the text, even if Jesus is using a different word, agape, in a couple of the questions than Peter's using, phileo, Peter's answer each time is, is, is affirmative. Peter, do you agape? Yes, Lord, I do. Right? And then he uses a different word, for the first two, they use the same word in the last two. But it's, it's hard to make much of any of the deep meaning in the different forms of love. I think it's more akin to a conversation like this. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord. You know how much I care about you. Right? So love and care in, in this situation are synonymous. Now, I, I think that's a fair enough bet. But what's more important is to see that by the third time Jesus asked, Peter's hurt. Deeply. That, that Greek word there, it's a deep hurt. His tears of bitterness from three denials ten days ago are fresh in his mind as he probably finally gets the point, right? Third time? It says he was really hurt when Jesus asked a third time. And I think that's supposed to take us to those three denials. So I think a significant t- takeaway here is that I just want to bring to you, brought to my heart, is the primacy of Sin to Jesus, the primacy of Jesus concerning our sin, rather. For Jesus, restoring Peter, coming back to fellowship with Peter, restoring that relationship, it meant a loving but real conversation about how Peter's sin affected Jesus. Jesus had taught the disciples in another place, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten by God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, the son of man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of heaven. And now on this beach of Galilee, Peter stands having feared men and put his trust in men more than Jesus instead of trusting men trusting Jesus more than men and for that Jesus says he deserves to be cast into hell it's that serious peter had denied jesus before men and so jesus says peter you deserve to be denied by me before heaven's audience Peter's sin was deeply meaningful to Jesus. And his gentle but clear words this morning are meant to tell Peter and are meant to tell us, I take your sin personally. It's personal to me, the Lord says. It hurts me. It's against me. Jesus was primary in Peter's sin. See, how easily I can presume that my sin just affects you. My sin just affects my wife. And how easily I can presume on God's forgiveness without thinking that He's the one who gets hit hardest by it, that hurts the most from it. Our sin is personal to Jesus. Another way this happens, I think, is, is, and this is especially true in the world, but it, we battle with it too, is, is we sort of, what I call, abstract sin. We sin against values. Like we sin against abstract values like kindness and selfishness and goodness and truth. But that's not what the universe is about. The universe doesn't orient itself around values of virtue and selflessness and goodness that we sin against. The universe <laughs> orients itself around a person who's owed and gets offended and deserves everything. But the world likes to use abstract values because it it denies the authority of that person who the world offends, who we offend, who's come to restore us to himself or for those who won't be reconciled to him, take vengeance that's just but horrible. To Jesus, all sin is personal to him. He takes it personally. It's a sin against his love. When David committed adultery with Bathsheba and murdered her husband, Uriah, he wrote in Psalm 51 to the Holy Spirit this. Against you and you only have I sinned. <laughs> Horrible terrorist bombing. In Istanbul this morning, I, I saw on the news, horrible, another one. Something like 32 police officers blown to eternity. and Countless others injured. We won't hear about God in the news articles being the one hurt most and offended most. But that's the true story of that situation. When David (laughs) killed Bathsheba's husband, he had the arrogance, the coldness, the selfishness to say against God only have I sinned? No, 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 no. It was humility. It was recognizing the real scorecard of the universe. He didn't mean that he didn't sin against Uriah and Uriah's wife. He meant that since Uriah and Bathsheba and everything and everyone and every moment is provided by the Lord, sustained by the Lord, belongs to the Lord, and is for the Lord. Then his sin found its deepest defense in how it trampled on the Lord. This is a crude example. But if I take John Christopher's transformer guy... And I just smash it apart on the kitchen floor with a hammer. And John comes in crying. I don't say, I'm so sorry, transformer guy. (laughs) Hey, John. Transformer guy, I'm so sad that I did that to you. What's up, buddy? That's not what I do, right? I mean, if that ever happened, it won't happen. I'm I'm not that, marbles aren't that loose yet, but... But that's what we do, crudely, right? Because the transformer guy is a real flesh and blood person in, in the real world who really does get hurt, who really does need care. But, but that's the kind of hyper, hyperbolic statement that has truth to it, that David's trying to say. Against you and you only have I sinned when I killed that man and took his wife to bed. But Listen. This is the other beautiful part about this. Jesus isn't letting Peter's sin keep them apart. And he goes after him to restore him. This is the primacy of Jesus in our love. Jesus is restoring Peter, bringing him back to his primary role as an apostle. Love me. Feed my sheep. Love me. Tend my lambs. Love me. Tend my sheep. This was the plan, Peter. We are going back to the plan. We are mending things. We're not giving up. And Peter's life will now be spent pouring himself out to shepherd the people of God, teaching the word of God, nourishing and protecting with the truth about Jesus. That's what Peter will do for the rest of his life, be a shepherd for God's people. But notice, what's the goal? What's the fuel for all this shepherding? Do you love me? And go to them. Do you love me? So care for them. Do you love me? So tend to them. It's all for Jesus. Jesus is primary in our love. He is to be the pinnacle of our love, the goal of our love above all others, the fuel for our love above all others. Peter, do you love me? Just as our sin against others finds itself... Oriented around Jesus firstly. So our love for others, it needs to find its justification, its fuel, its primary reason in loving Jesus. That's how it will survive. That's how it will flourish. That's how it will sustain itself. Because that's what happens when we love God's people. Truly, we're loving him. We saw this so clearly when Robin taught us a couple weeks ago on the sheeps and the goats. I was naked and you clothed me, Jesus says in Matthew 25. I was hungry and you fed me. I was in prison and you visited me. When did we ever see you naked and hungry and in prison? As often as you did it to one of these, the least of my brothers. Whenever you did it to my people, you did it to me. And listen, this isn't just an overwhelming responsibility. It is tremendously freeing. I remember one critical moment with Jen many years ago when I was really struggling to love her. We were in a conflict. I was certain... I can't even remember what it was about, but I was certain I was the more injured party. You laugh. It happens sometimes, right? People who know me laugh the hardest. People who know my wife laugh even more. But listen, it does happen. She would even say on occasion, I'm sure I'm on the losing side of the equation now. But that morning, intellectually, cerebrally, I couldn't get myself to apologize to her because I felt really offended by her. And I was trying to be intellectually honest. I think I was engaging with God. I was angry. I didn't want to talk to her. But I knew I had covenanted my life to hers. I was her husband. And it was my responsibility to try to see us to a better place. I just didn't want to. And then in my office, I sensed the Spirit say to me essentially, Albert, you are trying to love Jen for her sake. Based on her worth. And you don't see her as deserving it. I don't want to argue with you about that right now. That's not really primary, Albert. Love her for my sake. Love her for my glory. Love your wife because I deserve it. Love your wife because I deserve the glory from that. And folks, that was my escape hatch. That broke the chains of bitterness and resentment for that conflict. <laughs> and I was able to reach out to her through God's sake. And, you know, it was, hi, Jen, I don't want to talk to you. I don't love you that way I should because you hurt me. But for Jesus' sake, okay, hi. You know, <laughs> it, it, it wasn't like that, right? It wasn't like that. That's not what I'm talking about um, the best reason to love anyone is because you love Jesus. I I think, coming back to the world and and our flesh, I think it's easy for us to find two primary reasons to love and and push Jesus to the side to either reject him or just not think about him. First, we love others because we find them lovable. We feel like they're worthy of our love. They're worth our loving. They seem like they're good people or, or they just we just enjoy life because of them. And, and this can be well-meaning, and it, it can be a gift of God, and it can go smoothly for a while, as long as it lasts. But notice here, the primary focus is not on Jesus, but on the created thing. And this ultimately puffs up the creation in our estimation and displaces God to the side. So loving others is the first reason, I think, the world finds to love. But there's a second reason. The world loves because of morality, because loving others is virtuous and right. And again, there's common grace in this. God uses virtue. He uses the love of nobility. But if it never meets with Jesus, all it does, again, is place the primary emphasis on yourself. Because you want to love to be a moral person, a good person. And this ultimately puffs up yourself. Again, the creation, the ego. None of us wants to be a loathsome person, right? And so I pursue loving others because then I get to be a good person and not a loathsome person. Who wants to be a loathsome person, right? So morality is the other reason why the world appeals to us to love. But folks, the problem is that is not the way reality is. That's not the universe, right? The universe isn't oriented around people and it's not oriented around abstract virtues like be kind, it's oriented around a person, a God. And when, when all we do in our loving is love others because we feel they're worth it or love because we want to get good people, whether implicitly, explicitly, whether passive or active, whether on purpose or just the way our hearts are bent, we are ignoring God. And we are weakening if not destroying, our ability to sustain our love. Because he won't ultimately bow down to competitors like you and me in in abstract virtues. He is God Almighty, and he is owed our love. But the other thing is this works out so much better. It works out so much better. In the first case, loving others for their sake because we feel like they're lovable— well, Jesus is better because he's, he's the only one who's actually worthy of all of our love. Difficult newsflash. You are sinners. I am a sinner. That is a serious thing. The cross tells us that in ourselves, we do not deserve love. The cross tells us that in ourselves, we are worthy of God's wrath. The cross tells us that you and I cannot sustain or are worthy of the weight of our hopes. People are broken and fallen. They cannot sustain your idealism. John Piper said something like, I love this. And I couldn't find it on the web, so maybe he didn't say. Maybe I just invented it for him and you can quote me. But this is what I thought he said one day on a tweet. I only look impressive from far away. Isn't that great? I only look impressive from far away. Do you know that about me? <laughs> Do you know that about yourself? Some of you know that about me. The longer, and I'm not saying I look impressive to anybody, but but this has been my experience, because I, I, the longer I love, the more I be, get excited about people and, and put my eggs in their basket, the more I find out that all those people I think are going to be amazing and worthy. They are Broken people. When I really get to know any close friend, eventually they reveal themselves to be bent and damaged and flawed in some fundamental way. But even apart from the fault, apart from that, people were never meant to be the primary self-justifying objects for our love. They were never meant to sustain our primary focus of love. That, again, brings us back to this puffing up the creation as opposed to the creator. The creator. It's putting into the creature what, what only the creator can sustain. It's putting hope in people what only God can shoulder. And that always ends up in disaster. I've seen this at work in my marriage and my friendships and other marriages. We, we simply place expectations and hope into people that only Jesus can sustain. In our loving each other, Jesus must be primary And in the second case, morality, loving because love is good, love is virtuous. Again, it's such a sad concession to what what God offers us. We weren't meant to put our hopes in abstract ethics. Being good because goodness is good, justice is good, love is good, racial equality is good, mercy is good, unity is good. Amen, they're all good. God offers something so much better and so much truer. He offers a universe with the heart of a father at the center of it. And here's the other casualty of this loving because love is good thing that I experience. I've I've always found that when I'm trying to love others because it's right, instead of because I want to love Jesus, that despite my best intentions, I'm still... In the realm of self. It's still all about me. Me being good. Me, me being unselfish. Me afraid of not being good. Me afraid of not being loving. But folks, that's not love. Right? I mean, that spends itself out. And it, it's, it, Love is about the other. I remember years ago, early in my walk with Jesus, trying so hard to give a major decision to him. It was a vocational decision about being a teacher. The West Coast or or, or near home. It was weeks of seeking counsel, fasting probably, intense, stressed out, new religious zealot guy, you know? You ever met those relatively new believers, man? They are eating honey and eating locusts, got camel hair on them. And they are just like, I was so intensely focused on getting this right, being obsessed with, with dying to self. Dying to self to make the right choice for God. I couldn't settle on what path to choose. It was so just distressing. And I remember one day walking into a park in the middle of a work day. So weary of this journey. And I just sensed God gently trying to say to me. Albert. Buddy. (laughs) This has nothing to do with loving me. This is about you being afraid of me. This is about you being afraid of getting it wrong. Of getting into trouble. Take it easy. Here's some peace. Make this choice over here. (laughs) God released me from my frenzy that day and gave me a peace to move forward. But listen, he didn't do it because I loved him. He did it because he saw my immaturity and loved me anyway he saw my fear-based performance legalism and all its virtuous selfishness and he just said i love you anyway pal (laughs) son and that that experience of his love drawing me near to him gave me one more reason to love him a little bit better So yes, Jesus asks of you and of me. Do you love me? Do you love me? Yes, then out of love for me, feed my sheep. Out of love for me, care for your church members. Out of love for me, be tender to your wife. Out of love for me, submit to your husband, care for him. Out of love for me, rebuke your sister. Out of love for me, pay your bill. Out of love for me, tell your brother the truth about him. Out of love for me, obey your mom. Out of love for me, get off Facebook, do your homework. Out of love for me. Flee pornography. Fill in that timesheet the right way. Keep your promise. But but how do we sustain this love for Jesus that really will empower and, and, and keep that kind of love going? Just close with this. We have to do what Peter did. We have to spend time with Jesus. We have to try. We have to fail. We have to get back up and keep going. Peter loved Jesus because he knew Jesus and he knew Jesus was awesome. He knew Jesus was the greatest. He knew Jesus loved him. He knew Jesus because he paid attention to him. So we have to make paying attention to Jesus primary in our lives. We have to listen to his words. We have to talk to him in prayer. We have to remember his promises. We have to tell him we need his help. We have to see him destroy our fear and punishment at the cross. We have to see him give us victory over death for our future and the resurrection. We have to admit our sin to him. We have to realize it's personal to him. We have to accept his love and forgiveness that's always available to us. We have to recommit ourselves to him. We have to just take whatever small or great, feeble or strong steps we can towards him in obedience we have to fight to not be hearers of his word only, but doers, depending on his strength every step of the way. We, we do. We have to do all those things. We, we should do all those things. But most of all, most of all, we have to fight to remember that we are able to love because he first loved us. Our loving Jesus, it is sourced in, it is empowered by, it is protected by how beautiful he is. And how much he loves us. So let's end this morning with one final flashback. Just a few seconds before that first flashback we started with in the upper room. Reeling back the rewind button just a a couple of seconds earlier. When Jesus first tells Peter that he's going to deny him. If we go back just a couple of seconds, we'll find the most beautiful thing. we'll find the hope and the power for our loving Jesus. And here it is. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. With this verse in mind, John Piper says, The word of encouragement and consolation and hope I want to offer you today from God's word is that if you love God and are called according to His purpose, if if you are despairing of your own resources, if you are despairing of your own resources and looking to Christ for hope, then to you belongs a most wonderful promise. Jesus prays for you, and he will never let Satan destroy your faith and bring you to ruin. Brothers and sisters, on the basis of his once and for all sacrifice, Jesus was able to sustain Peter through his horrible sin and restore him to the Father. And brother, sister, he will do the same for you. Jesus will see to it that you see him risen and live eternal restored to him. Let's despair of our own resources. Let's look to Christ for hope. And let's love him. Let's go to love him. Amen.